Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gura and Tom Keene here in New York in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. As we've mentioned, it's UN General Assembly Week here uh, in New York. We're making fun of the uh, traffic. But a big deal here is more than 100 heads of state, world leaders uh, descend on New York for meetings and dinners uh, and the like. And, of course, President Trump in town scheduled to address the UN General Assembly tomorrow uh, for the first time. Uh, Congressman Jane, former Congressman Jane Harmon with us here now in our Bloomberg studios. Uh, former Congresswoman now uh, president of the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Great to have you with us. What are you going to be listening for uh, tomorrow? This is a, a big deal, suffice to say, uh, to have this audience, to be in that uh, space. What are you going to be listening for from the president tomorrow? Well, this is a chance for him to recalibrate his foreign policy. I, uh, I, I think his uh, inaugural speech was disappointing. And here's a chance on a world stage with world leaders uh, for him to sound much more visionary and hopeful. And he should take a chance, take the opportunity, in my view. He's also having side meetings with all kinds of folks, uh, Europeans, Africans, and he's having lunch with uh, uh, the heads of South Korea and Japan on Thursday. Uh, North Korea will be the top of his agenda. And again, North Korea is an international problem. It's not just an American problem. And he needs to make the sale to the whole world about why we should work together uh, to contain North Korea's missiles and nukes. What's your, your sense of how he regards the, the United Nations at this point, how important it is to him and his foreign policy portfolio? I do note that uh, Nikki Haley, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., uh, front and center, perhaps even more so than, than his secretary of state, talking about global issues, including uh, the, the North Korea crisis uh, as well. Have you seen an evolution in his thinking about this multi- multilateral institution, at least? Well, he made a, a terrific choice in Nikki Haley. Um, who knew that the governor of South Carolina would be such a star on the U.N. stage? But she is. However, um, my understanding is he's cutting her staff in half, and this will be a place where he announces rolling back uh, U.S. foreign aid uh, as a Member of Congress, I always was amazed when my constituents would say 50% of the budget goes to foreign aid. Well, excuse me, it's less than 1% of the budget, and it is probably our best foreign policy tool. You were on the, the Intelligence Committee, the Homeland Security Committee, the Armed Services Committee. Uh, really have a great sense of, of the way that security apparatus works in, in Washington, D.C. You talk about um, staffing being cut back, security aid funding being cut back uh, as well. How problematic is that to, to your mind? Um, this president talks about reform of the U.N., talks about reform of all of these uh, institutions, uh, has even joked about uh, Russia sending back a bunch of diplomats. That's helping the, the, the bottom line. Uh, from, from, from a perspective of, of actionable policy, how affected are these institutions as a result of the cuts that we've seen thus far or the positions that have gone unfilled? Well, let's understand that I don't think Congress will stand for this. And I think many in Congress, Lindsey Graham comes to mind, many in the president's party will restore the funding. So let's go there. But if the seventh floor, which is the main uh, floor of senior people at the State Department is empty, how can Rex Tillerson succeed? So that's the beginning of the the problem. But in addition to that, um, uh, Jim Mattis, our our very capable uh, secretary, Secretary of Defense Mm. says that uh, military policy has to be lashed up to Mm. diplomatic policy or whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, non-military policy. And without people, you can't do it. 
Madam Aerospace, that's what my father called you. <laughs> you you were the congresswoman of the aerospace industry. Anyone would always say that. You had a wonderful understanding of aerospace. Are you taken back by the merger frenzy among defense contractors and in this highly technological expertise that we have, UTX, Rockwell Collins mm -hmm. of Cedar Rapids, and now we've got Orbital Sciences being crowbarred out by Northrop. Come on, it's all going to be one big company, isn't it? Well, Is that what you want? Eh, well, not so much. Uh, Bill Perry, <laughs> who was an extraordinarily good Secretary of Defense back in you know another century yeah. uh, when Bill Clinton was president, uh, had what was famously called the Last Supper. And that was with heads of defense firms. This is not a bit Norma of a re Augustine reference. Norm Yes. <laughs> and his point was that the uh, uh, defense procurement budget is getting smaller. We all thought there would be a peace dividend uh, after the end of the Cold War. Hmm. But at any rate, uh, and that these firms should consider merging. Uh, and they also uh, did consider – this was something I'm proud of – going into uh, 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 many uh, non-military mm -hmm. activities, dual-use activities, which made them stronger. So I'm not surprised to see continued mergers. The advantage is that many of these very good right. firms, and Northrop is one of them, uh, will be uh, good stewards of this new right. acquisition. The disadvantage is you lose the nimbleness mm. and the right. flexibility of the smaller firms. So I, I think it's a mixed bag. I'm strongly for a, a strong defense, as you know, and Madam Aerospace yeah. ain't bad. I used to call myself <laughs> Boeing's mother, so this is, they this were is great even band. better. Boeing's mother was out of Boulder, Colorado. They played dead like nobody. Jane Harmon with us, uh, the 36th uh, district, of course, at the Woodrow uh, Wilson Center. Now we continue. Jane, there was that couch scene the other day. Speaker Pelosi, Majority Leader Schumer, and some other guy from the other party. Can the Democratic Party migrate over to Jane Harmon's Democratic Party? Or is it going to be Clinton Pelosi forever? Well, how's this? What's the, what are the young kids going to do? Right. Are they going to refine you and Scoop Jackson? Yeah, well, I yes, I have called myself a Scoop Jackson Democrat. For years, I actually knew him when I was a Senate aide in the early '70s, and he was he was Boeing senator, so yeah. uh, from from uh, Washington State. Uh, but yesterday in this town, there was a meeting of something called the New Center. The New Center is an idea factory co-chaired by Bill Crystal and Bill Galston. Hmm. Uh, imagine that, and it has produced a set of ideas <clears throat> that I think are very attractive okay. to both parties. So. That's out there. Maybe it'll get traction. Maybe people will move to the center in both parties. Okay, Secretary Clinton's out in a book tour, taking a victory lap, I guess. And we had all the uproar last week. David Gura covered it really well in politics. Congresswoman Harmon, how do you win? How do you win Michigan? How do you win Wisconsin? How do you win the rectangle that looks like Tennessee that was your district east of L.A.? <laughs> well, I won in a lean Republican district. Now, how did I, in my first exactly. three terms, how did I do that? I had a vision of where we were going that uh, uh, people bought. Uh, you got to have a vision. It's not just that the other guy's bad. It's why you're good. When you left, uh, when you left the Congress, uh, things were, I'll say, uh, getting bad in terms of uh, partisanship, uh, in terms of the ability for Congress to get things. Then we saw another continuing resolution here kicking the can forward three uh, months now. What do you say to those who are just completely skeptical of Congress's ability to get uh, anything? And what's it going to what's it going to bring? What's going to bring you back to regular order in in the U.S. Congress? Do you think? Well, I I believe in Congress. I did leave because of the toxic partisanship, and I got a better offer to be in a uh, bipartisan, nonpartisan uh, you still intellectual. Still have to fundraise, maybe a bit. 
Yeah, so, but not for me. Not it's not invest yeah. in me. It's invest in, in in amazing, brilliant ideas. So, uh, which is an easier sell, gotta say. Uh, but at any rate, uh, I I still think Congress can work. There's so many people there who want to do the right thing in both parties as they define it. What's wrong is the is the business model's broken. Uh, the game is to blame the other side for not solving the problem. If you work with the other side, you get <clears throat> primaried. California's figured out a better answer. We have. Uh, 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 citizen commissions to draw lines. We have what's called a jungle primary where everyone runs against everyone, and that way you have to listen to other people and be open to other ideas. There, there's been a tendency to uh, fix Congress by trying to blow it up. Uh, and I wonder what you, what you make of the way that many elected representatives have pursued that. Who has the institutional knowledge, the memory, uh, to figure out the way that the, the Congress works and to, to find solutions that will actually improve the way things work in Capitol Well, I, actually, I like the last part of that question about improve. Uh, Congress has a 19th century committee structure. I mean, why do we need an agriculture committee when we don't really have a homeland security mm-hmm. committee with, with ample jurisdiction, uh, et cetera? So I do think Congress has to change. And being disruptive is not a bad thing, but being disruptive with respect for right. the institution mm-hmm. is the way it needs to happen. We, we do a huge thing on STEM here. Thank you, New Jersey Institute of Technology. You're a smithy. That's the ultimate liberal arts Massachusetts school. Tell me how you fit science in the new curriculum a woman of the liberal arts. How do you fit science and math into the new liberal arts curriculum? Boy, was that a softball. First of all, <laughs> I applied early decision to Smith, having never seen it, from public school in Los Angeles. So Very there. cool. Uh, it was very cool. And Smith was the first women's college to have an engineering program. And it's had it for years, So yeah. just so you know. So it's not some How do we get place. quickly here? How do we get women to stay in math, stay in science, and do it like the women that made Cassini? Uh, I, I, by making it more easily available and making it cool. And mm-hmm. uh, ask about it on your program every single day, and more women will tune in well, and, and put mentors on your program, we, and they'll do it. We try to do it. I know you're still Congresswoman. Keep funding JPL. Jane Harmon, Madam Aerospace from California, has something to do with a school in New Jersey now as well. This is Bloomberg. Stephen Ratner joining us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios, the chairman of Willett uh, Advisors. Uh, uh, great to have you with us here. Let me start just by asking you about um, the, the week ahead. Uh, yes, we have the Fed. We also have uh, a lot of traffic here on the Upper East Side of, of Manhattan as the U.N. General Assembly gets uh, underway. The president's scheduled to speak uh, tomorrow before that uh, that international body. What are you going to be listening for? We had a, 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 a list of what this administration is prioritizing from uh, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and from the National Security Advisor on Friday. Reform high up on the list, the president attending a meeting about U.N. reform uh, today. In particular, what are you going to be listening for tomorrow? Well, as you know, there are really two Trumps. There's the there's the more congenial, more uh, broad, uh, broad-looking Trump, and then there's the the more of the, the ugly Trump. And it'll be interesting, especially with Steve Bannon gone from the White House, to see if we get more of the good Trump. Now, even some of... of Trump's uh, more experienced people do favor uh, reforming the U.N., cutting what we pay to the U.N., things like that. So I think in the speech, there's obviously going to be presumably a hunk about North Korea, uh, and there's going to be a piece about how he sees the U.N. going forward. He does not like multilateral institutions. I think we've learned that about his personality. So it'll, it'll be interesting. It could be a pretty tough speech. It could be a pretty tough speech, but I suspect he'll stay within the fairway. 
How do you uh, assess the efficacy of sanctions? We saw the UN Security Council apply another round of them last week uh, on North Korea. Um, there's talk perhaps of, of more. We've had them on North Korea, on Venezuela, on Russia, on a number of other countries. How do you know if they're working? They, I think sanctions at best take a long time to work. You can go further back in history and you look at Rhodesia, you can look at Cuba, you can look at Iran. Uh, you're talking about things that take decades and may then even have no effect and then at some point you just decide to unwind them. But look, we have a limited toolbox of things we can do about North Korea short of, of military activity, which I don't think anybody thinks is a good idea. And sanctions are simply are simply one part of it. And I think I would give the president and Nikki Haley in particular high marks for getting a 15 to nothing vote on a set of sanctions. Mm. And I think I think if you take out Trump, what Trump has said, some of what Trump has said and most of his tweets, the actual uh, things that are being said by Rex Tillerson and Nikki Haley yesterday on the Sunday shows, the way it's the, the way the professionals are handling this is actually, I think, about as good as it gets. But there is the green marble of the U.N. There is something about walking into that time warp of middle 60s architecture and walking into that assembly hall. I'm assuming he's never done that. He's going to go up there against that green marble and act at what ecumenical. Is that the right word? I mean, what if somebody pops off and says something? What if like somebody who's kind of somebody? Hootsam or, you know, <laughs> you, th you think he's going to stay on message? I think he is going to stay on message. I just don't know what the message is. Yeah. Right. And is Secretary it, Tillerson showing up? I assume so. Every Secretary of State in history has been at the UN General Assembly week, as far as I know. I assume so. Look, my my guess is that you will get. Uh, my guess is that you will get a measured Trump, who will be tough about the UN and say that there should be changes and and it's not as effective as it should be, et cetera, et cetera. And I think he'll be. Tough on North Korea, but I think he will stay inside the fairway in terms of... That's uh, golf talk, David. Right. <laughs> and I'm not even a golfer, but I think he'll stay in the fairway in terms of the kinds of things he says. I, I believe President Xi's not going to be here. President Putin's not going to be here uh, as well. How much of vacuum does that leave? I mean, I think of, of, of the two countries uh, on this globe that have the, the, the largest impact on a number of these big issues, be that North Korea or Syria. Uh, is is it going to be uh, a hindrance to actual things getting done by them not being here uh, in New York? Uh, yes and no. I think obviously in the modern world, there's certainly communications back and forth with their people that Even will allow that things to happen. Building, yeah. But but I think it does. I think we do lose something because I think uh, I think having the, our president have a chance to have bilaterals with Putin with Xi yeah. is an important part of trying to diplomatically move the world forward. We got 12 seconds left. I mean, no, excuse me, we have a minute left. Long time. Can you own Apple here? We've had really diff a different set of opinions over the that's last two weeks. That's called a non-sequitur. Right yeah, there. that's sort of a non-sequitur. <laughs> that was a segui. Yeah. I, I have never owned Apple, uh, not because I don't like the company, and obviously been wrong. I think, uh, I think they've done a great job. I think the, the, I think the existential question for Apple is what is the next act, and is Tim Cook able to produce mm. it? You know, Steve Jobs, if you just think back to when, Steve, when this thing made, when, when Apple made some computers, and that was kind of it, and Steve Jobs said, well, we're going to make a phone. And everybody said, what? And the phone is now over half the business, as you know, and the iPad, and the Apple TV, and the iWatch, and all this other now, and all, now all the media stuff. The, the question really is, can Tim Cook produce an innovation on the scale of the kinds of things Steve Jobs did that really transformed the company? Steve Ratner, thank you so much, particularly for UN perspective. How do you get around town? 
this uh, week. This, do you, this do you week, have like I, a, I, I do a lot a, of walking. Yeah. A guy you yeah, know has a helicopter I, I do that a lot. you around. <laughs> I, I, I try not to go below 60th Street, and I do a lot of walking. There you go. That would be it. Steve Ratner, thank you so much. With Willard Advisors, we should point out uh, uh, an investment advisor to Michael Bloomberg, the principal owner of the company, and also, of course, owner of Bloomberg Radio as well. Alan Kruger here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios, professor of economics and public policy uh, at Princeton, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under uh, President Obama. This this week, uh, the president has proclaimed this week to be prescription opioid and heroin epidemic awareness uh, week. Uh, he's talked about uh, opioid addiction, the problem of it uh, in this country uh, a few times. I don't think he's gone so far as to declare it a national emergency yet, but has certainly indicated that might be that might be coming. We talk about it in a social context. Help us frame it in an economic context. How big an issue is this for the U.S. Uh, at this point? Well, I give the president credit for talking about the issue. I think it's important that we also take some concrete actions. And I was hoping that the commission that he set up would make proposals to try to reduce the crisis. Uh, I've been doing research on how the spread of uh, opioid use has been affecting labor force participation. And as you know, David, we have a problem of low labor force participation in the U.S. That's run into the opioid crisis. Mm. And I think those two problems are now intertwined. When I look at prime-age men, um, I find that almost half are taking pain medication every day. Two-thirds of those uh, people are taking prescription medication. And a new study I have that I just presented at the Brookings Institution last week, I found that areas of the country where more opioid medication is being prescribed have seen bigger decline in labor force participation. Uh, Of course, there could be other factors behind that. But from what I can tell, this is possibly depressed... Um, the participation rate by more than half a percentage point for prime age men. You, you, again, we're talking about the sort of the economic factors here. When you look at the the conversation about this issue in particular, how much dialogue has there been uh, among economists and social scientists and uh, addiction specialists and medical doctors? You mentioned the commission that the president established. I don't think that there was a medical doctor on that uh, committee of four or five uh, individuals. Are you satisfied as you look into this that the the kind of dialogue we need to have is taking place, incorporating your economics with um, the, the the medical side of this issue as well? There's a lot of fascinating research that's being done. Um, Some of the results quite depressing. I'll tell you an example. I have a colleague, uh, Janet Curry, who has a study which finds that doctors who attended uh, lower-ranked medical schools are more likely to prescribe opioid medication, looking within the same county, looking within the same field of specialty. Um, So I think there's fascinating research that's being done. I haven't seen much interest uh, from policymakers yet. Alan Kruger with us, folks. And again, as we like to do from time to time, particularly with someone with the reach of Professor Kruger's move away from the usual, which is jobs in the economy, to his important work at Brookings paper on uh, opioid and, and such. Um, there's some wonderful first order difference equations within your report. And maybe I even saw an Euler function. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure. There's lambdas and other Greek letters. What the public wants to know is horse and cart which is almost economics 101. Do the drugs cause the unemployment or does the unemployment cause the drugs? Well, that's an excellent question. And I appreciate, Tom, that you have a copy of my study right next to you. I didn't read it, Uh, but it's there. (laughs) I saw you browsing through it, so I really appreciate that. And you cut right to the heart of the matter, so I appreciate that. You know, I think the arrows point in both directions. And in certain 
level, the mm-hmm. initial causality is less important than the reality yeah. that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. But this is so important. You nailed it. You go right. The, it goes in both directions. But the political discourse is, no, it goes in this direction, and the other side says, no, it goes in that direction. Can we get compromise on the couch in the Oval Office on opioids and drug addiction, this heroin epidemic that we have? No, I think there is widespread agreement that this is a significant problem, and I think that came out in the uh, presidential election. Um, there's been very little discussion about what to do about it. I mean, let me give you another example, Tom. One of the findings in that in that Brookings study is that three-quarters of the prescription pain medication that men who are out of the labor force are taking is being paid for by Medicaid, Medicare, or Veterans Administration program. So the government does have levers to try to influence the initial prescription, and that does seem to be a source of a lot of the addiction. Even if people move to illegal drugs, it seems that their addiction is starting with prescription medication. That's such a good point. And on the, the subject of, of illegal drugs, I mean, there's another economics issue here as well, which is just the relative uh, cheapness of a lot of these drugs. They're easier to get and they're, they're less expensive uh, as well. Well, that's part of the problem. The New York Times had an article today about insurance companies being reluctant to prescribe more expensive but less addictive pain medication, uh, and that comes down to economics. And I don't think the insurance companies are taking full account of the cost of the externalities of having over 30,000 people a year die from opioid abuse. We, our, our parents lectured us on heroin. It's what they were afraid of. And it was all, you know, within the culture and the music. This is completely removed from the drug culture of 20 or 50 or 100 years ago. And it's almost an economic discussion, isn't it, about fentanyl or whatever it is. It's dirt cheap. And it's, am I right? It's just there? It's dirt cheap. It's highly addictive. And it's very powerful. And it's there. And it's available. It's available. Isn't that fixable? You know, this problem is almost unique to the U.S. You look at the rest of the world, they're not going through this type of How do you fix it? Give me the, give me after the first order difference equations, what's the Kruger solution? Well, I think there's some obvious solutions, and some states have started with this. Limit the number of pills that can pe- that people yes. can get at the initial prescription. Make them come back and see a medical profession, professional do to get another prescription. Do you blame the doctors? I think the medical profession bears a lot of responsibility. I mean, you go to Manchester, New Hampshire, which I guess is ground zero in New Hampshire. Do you blame the doctors? Do you blame the hospital? Do you blame Raytheon for pulling their business out 40 years ago? I mean, where's the Kruger blame here? Well, you know, Tom, I'm focused on solutions, not on blame. Oh, listen to you. David, he sounds like a professor. (laughs) So uh, I I think what we should do is say, how do we solve this problem? Figuring out and assigning blame when there's plenty of blame to go around is not terribly helpful. Is this something when you were chairing the the, the Council of Economic Advisors, you would have easy access to somebody at DHS? In other words, how hard is it to get all of the the parties within – uh, public policy to the table to get folks heading up different agencies to meet with the White House to, to work on these kinds of solutions? That's not hard at all. What the government is great at is meetings. Uh-huh. Uh, what, what I found when I worked for President Obama at the Treasury Department, at the White House, government is great at meetings, good at talking, good at listening. Action is more difficult, and particularly well, if the action requires Congress. We've been talking around this a little bit here, but um, Tell us just what data you looked at. How difficult is it to come by data on this subject of opioid addiction in particular? I started using a survey called the American Time Use Survey, 
which is a real gem. It's collected by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And it had a supplement, which I helped, frankly, to design, uh, which asked people about their experience with pain and whether they took pain medication on the previous day. And when I started the study, I didn't expect to find what I found. You know, that survey found that in 2013, 44% of prime age men, men 25 to 54, who were not working, not looking for a job, took pain medication on the day of the survey. Mm. And I didn't know, maybe it was aspirin. You know, you feel differently if it's aspirin. So I did a survey myself where we identified about 600 men who were not in the labor force, same age group. We found that 47% of them uh, had taken pain medication. Two-thirds of that group took prescription pain medication. And then I dug deeper uh, in that survey. The CDC does a survey on people's experience with pain over time. It's a very big sample. Uh, Amazingly, one of the things that data shows is that pain uh, has not been declining in spite of the fact that we've almost quadrupled the amount of opioids that are being prescribed. Uh, Pain for men who are out of the labor force has actually been gradually rising over time. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of other evidence that suggests that this treatment is not working. So I used a variety of data, but those were the main sources. I want to ask you just about the role economics can play in solving or leading to a solution for social crises uh, like these. Uh, As Tom was saying before we went to break, um, this is something I think more people are talking about. Uh, Unfortunately, I think more people have uh, experience with looking back at the history of of, of economics and the way that it can influence discourse and conversation about issues uh, like these. What's the role of economics in a conversation about opioid addiction in this country? Well, I think economics has an important role to play in, frankly, in all policy issues. Uh, I don't think it should be the only voice at the table, but I think it's an important vo- important voice. And in economics, we tend to think about incentives. You know, we, we, we're, we're pretty good at, at calculating costs, uh, and we're pretty good at considering incentives. People don't always respond the way we think they right. should respond, uh, but we can think about what the economic incentives are. And I think this crisis is in part a result of economic incentives. It's in part a result of uh, economic weakness and for three decades uh, having a hollowing out of the middle class. And I think it's in part a result of incentives in the health field. Tom mentioned Manchester, New Hampshire is certainly uh, affecting some local communities more acutely than others, although I would say with with a broad brush it's it's happening across the, the country. When you look at this on a regional basis, uh, are there places who have it worse than, than others? Absolutely. You know, if you look at prescription... Uh, uh, opioid medication, if you, and you compare the top 10% and the bottom 10% across America, it's a factor of 30 to 1. Mm. So uh, I don't think there's any way yeah. that pain varies by 30 to 1 right. across counties. Um, as best I could tell, it doesn't vary by anything like that. So I think the medical profession practices, and we find this across medicine in many different fields. If you look at hernia operations, if you look mm-hmm. at uh, cesarean sections, there big variability. There's very big variability across regions. The Kruger style is rigid, rigorous economics and mathiness. And then you will have a paragraph that you parachute in with. And here you quote Hillbilly Elegy, all the rage right now, J.D. Vance. You quote Rick in Jackson, Kentucky. And you quote Case, you quote Case Deaton, Angus Deaton, the laureate, uh, and in Case doing better than good, on the depth Uh, The Deaths of Despair. Okay, so there's a medical community and there's a fancy pants medical community. Is this about second-rate doctors? Are the doctors victim of the incentives? How do you blame the physicians 
um, prescribing the medicines for the deaths of despair? Well, I think some of it's incentives for the doctors. I agree. I think they don't have enough time to properly treat many of their patients. Sometimes they're... they're in, oh, come on. They're in, it's like 60 Minutes last night. Basically, it's a drug commercial with Steve Croft wrapped around it. Come on. These guys are incentivized to move drugs, right? Am I right? That was going to be my next sentence. Okay. Uh, their incentives push them in this direction. Um, so I don't think they're necessarily bad people, but I think many are responding to the incentives they face. Can we pivot here and just ask a few questions about uh, leading up to this meeting, this Fed meeting this week? Uh, earlier on the show, I was saying— I could talk real uh, economics sorry. here? Come on. <laughs> real economics, so we could just to close things up. But uh, we were talking earlier in the show just about the focus that we've had on inflation in this country in particular. And it seems like we've talked less about the labor market as a result of that. Certainly the Fed is grappling with, with both, although it seems like increasingly the, the part we're focused on, on is inflation. How does the, the labor market look to you at, at this point? How concerned are you about Slack? How concerned do you think this Fed is about where the labor market is at this point? Well, what I say is there's a lot of Slack, but it's not effective Slack. Uh-huh. So 11.5% of prime age men are not in the labor force. That's certainly Slack. It's not effective in the sense that they're not all that likely to come back to the labor force, even if the economy picks up. And I think it is related to the opioid crisis that we've been discussing. Um, so I think the, the, the problems are connected. Uh, obviously, given that the surprise on the low side in inflation the last six months uh, has taken a lot of people by surprise, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that does deserve a tremendous right. amount of attention. The, the last CPI picked up a bit. I think that will give, give analysts a lot to chew over. Um, and there'll be more, a lot more information coming so in between question, now and December. On, on, on the opioid issue and, and that percent of the, the workforce, or that segment of the workforce you're talking about, this Fed must be as flummoxed as everyone from a policy perspective about this issue. How tight are its hands? How tight are Fed policymakers' hands when it comes to dealing with this this crisis in particular? Well, I think this is beyond the Fed's yes, control. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it's a f- crisis that they're focused on. Janet Yellen cited yeah. the opioid crisis in testimony uh, a couple of months Has ago. She, have they acknowledged it enough, do you think? Um, I think it's something they're aware of. Yeah. I haven't seen uh, research from the Fed staff on the issue yet, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's something they have in the works. In time, I've got left two ideas. The first one is uh, my long read of the weekend was Alan Blinder, the former vice chairman of the Fed, writing about his magnificent co-author of a classic economics textbook, William Balmo. How does that process go at Princeton where you honor a giant as you did with the death of William Balmo? Well, Bommel, as I've said on your show, was a real giant in economics. and In many different ways. It's uncountable. Contributions were extraordinary. I mean, in his 80s and early 90s, he was more productive than most economists are throughout their career. Uh, Bommel's uh, cost disease is something I teach to my, my freshman class. Uh, we, we have a, a process when uh, we have a university-wide faculty meeting early in the fall to recognize colleagues who have passed away in the past year. Uh, a faculty member writes a statement. It's supposed to be a joint statement, but Alan Blinder is such a beautiful writer. Alan, uh, Alan wrote it himself, and Bert Malkiel and I signed on to it, uh, asked him not to change a word. It was such a beautiful statement about Will's contributions. Mm-hmm. And the final thing is, it is uh, Travel Monday here at Bloomberg Surveillance, where we ask all our guests about how tough was the trip to Venice. <laughs> T- tell us about traveling to Venice. We last talked to Dr. Kruger from, uh, from the canals of Venice. From the on canals of Venice. First of all, I'm obliged to point out that I was in Europe because I went to an economic conference that was in Croatia. Very good. And the easiest way to get there was to fly of into course. Venice, rent yeah. a car, and drive 
And you did, the this, you did this at King's Landing in Dubrovnik, right? <laughs> no, it was further north. It was Umag, yeah. a beautiful, beautiful part of uh, Europe. Yeah. I had never been to Croatia before, and it was a very, very fine conference mm. that I attended. You didn't answer the question. Uh, How was Venice? <laughs> <laughs> Venice, uh, Venice was lovely. As, as, as I've, I've only been to Venice a few times. It's uh, lovely as it's been each time I visited. Very good. Alan Kruger, we'll have him a joint interview with Luigi Zingales. Economic conference season is a good one, Tom. I feel oh, it is. Jealous yes, of the, uh, yes. Trips to Lake Como and the like. But. Yes, well, I'm not, I don't, you know, <laughs> Reto Keeper of the MX says no. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen, David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.